Would you rather be a player on the bench of a state championship team or the star of a losing team? Let's pose the question another way. Would you rather be the star of a B-grade movie that barely makes it into video stores or have a supporting role in the next Gone with the Wind? Look at it one more way. Would you rather have your 15 minutes of fame or do something rather ordinary that people are still talking about 2,000 years later because you were a part of something that changed the world? Well, this morning we're going to look at some rather ordinary people who are remembered primarily for their association with a most extraordinary man, the Apostle Paul, and what they accomplished together for the kingdom of God. And Paul made sure that we knew of them and even knew their names. He listed 26 friends and co-workers in the closing chapter of Romans and mentions 10 by name, in the final verses of Colossians. His willingness to put them in the spotlight tells us something about his character and the value he put on his co-workers. He realized he was part of a team, and every player was important. Surely that should inspire every one of us to take seriously our supporting role in the work of the church. We, too, are part of a winning team, and our coach will be praising us for all eternity if we just do the job he's assigned to us and equipped us to do. You know, when we come to a list of names in the Bible, there's a temptation to skip over it, thinking it to be of little value to us. But let's look carefully at Paul's supporting cast this morning and be encouraged as we see the value he placed on each member of the team. And we begin with a look at his messengers. Colossians chapter 4, starting with verse 7. And to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Now, Paul didn't try to put everything in his letters. He was a prisoner and could only say so much. But he sent the letter by the hand of Tychicus and Onesimus and trusted that they would fill everyone in on the details of his circumstances and personally encourage the recipients. So who were these men who delivered the letter? Well, Tychicus, first and foremost, was a trusted messenger and representative of Paul. We first meet him in Acts 20, 
where he is listed as one of the men who accompanied Paul on the last leg of his third missionary journey. Two of the men, Tychicus and Trophimus, were said to have been from Asia, probably Ephesus. They accompanied Paul to Macedonia and Greece, and then met again with him in Troas, and traveled with him to Jerusalem to deliver the offerings from the Gentile churches to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Well, apparently, Tychicus decided to stay with Paul and be of service to him after the mission to Jerusalem was completed. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and in Titus, he says he was going to send him on a mission to Crete. We know he was the one who carried Paul's letters to the Ephesians and Colossians, and no doubt the personal note to Philemon as well. He's referred to as a beloved brother, a faithful servant, and a fellow bondservant in the Lord. What more do we need to know of him? If that much were recorded of us in Scripture, surely that would be the highest praise we could want. Sent with Tychicus was Onesimus. He was a runaway slave who became a faithful and beloved brother. We read of him in Paul's note to Philemon, which we're going to look at next week. When he and Tychicus arrived in Colossae, where Philemon apparently lived, Paul reminded the church that Onesimus was one of their number and told them he would inform them of Paul's situation. The runaway slave had become a messenger of the Apostle Paul. Now, as far as we know, these men weren't exceptionally talented. They weren't stars in the kingdom, but there will certainly be stars in their crown for the service they rendered as simple messengers of Paul. If it weren't for them, we may never have been privileged to read three of Paul's letters. They became a vital link between him and us, and that makes them great in anyone's book. Next, Paul mentions his fellow Jewish workers. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Aristarchus we met in Ephesus when Demetrius the silversmith stirred the crowd into a frenzy because Paul was ruining his idol-making business. It was Aristarchus and Gaius they dragged into the assembly when they couldn't find Paul. In the 19th chapter of Acts, he's referred to as a traveling companion of Paul from Macedonia. And as they were setting sail for Syria in the 20th chapter, we discover he was from Thessalonica. So he was a traveling companion. But he's definitely more than traveling companion. He was a loyal and faithful friend. 
When Paul was put on a ship as a prisoner heading for Rome, we find Luke and Aristarchus were still with him. And here Paul refers to him as my fellow prisoner. How he became such, we can only surmise. But it almost appears that he did so voluntarily, refusing to leave Paul's side. History tells us he paid the ultimate price for such loyalty and was martyred by Nero just a few years after this was written. Paul also sent greetings on behalf of Mark. And in doing so, we learn that Mark was Barnabas' cousin, which helps explain Barnabas' attachment to him. You may recall that Mark, John Mark, had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, at least part of the way. For unexplained reasons, he left them and went home. When Paul was ready to leave on the second journey with Barnabas, Barnabas wanted Mark to once again accompany them, but Paul refused to let him go. A disagreement ensued and two teams were formed as a result. Paul took Silas with him and Barnabas took Mark. Mark was an unreliable quitter in Paul's eyes, at least for a time. By now, he had redeemed himself. And Paul told the Colossians to welcome him as previously instructed. Apparently, there had been some hesitancy to accept him if Paul wouldn't. So he made it clear that they were to welcome him. And he openly expressed his feelings about Mark in his last letter, 2 Timothy, when he wrote, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Mark was a worker who failed, but overcame his failure to become a faithful fellow worker. And it's not easy to overcome failure, even in church. There's a tendency to just give up and drift away. But Mark didn't, even after being shunned by the Apostle Paul. Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, no doubt played a part in helping Mark overcome his failure. But I think Paul's discipline may have helped as well, causing him to rethink the cost of discipleship. And tradition tells us it was Peter's relationship with Mark that gave rise to his writing of the Gospel of Mark. You know, hopefully there are those in the church today who will likewise encourage us, discipline us, and embrace us when we fail or when someone writes us off. And like Mark, we'll hang in there and discover what God can do with a failure. Next, we meet Jesus called Justice. Now, Jesus was a common name for Jewish men in Paul's day. It was the Greek form of Jeshua, which was the late form of Joshua, which means Jehovah. We don't usually pronounce it that way, but Jehovah is salvation. 
This is the only place where this particular Jesus is mentioned, but it's enough to know that he's called justice, which is Latin for just or righteous. If that's all anyone knew about us, that we were just and righteous, that would be enough. These were Paul's fellow workers for the kingdom who were from the circumcision, his Jewish brethren. And he says they proved to be an encouragement to him, a comfort. The word he used is paragoria, from which we get the word paragoric, which I remember from childhood. When we had stomach problems, Dad would give us pabazol with paragoric something I could have used last Sunday. (laughs) It's no longer available. (laughs) Because paragoric is a controlled substance made from powdered opium. (laughs) But it was a comforting agent (laughs) that brought relief. And apparently it was a real comfort to Paul to have Jewish fellow workers in the kingdom. It was a comfort, no doubt, to see at least some Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah and would work side by side with the apostle to the Gentiles. And then, of course, he did have his Gentile fellow workers. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. We first read of Epaphras in chapter 1. He was from Colossae, one of their number, and had gone to Rome to tell Paul of the situation in the church there and to no doubt seek his advice. Epaphras was the one who had shared the gospel with the Colossians and was probably the evangelist who established churches in Laodicea and Hierapolis as well as in Colossae. Here we learn that he labored earnestly, agonizing in prayer over all three churches, praying that they would stand perfect, complete, and fully assured, confident, as they lived within the will of God. He was a faithful fellow worker and prayer partner, who not only led people to Christ, but who taught them and prayed for them and helped bring them to maturity in the faith. He was a man with a real pastor's heart who would do whatever he could to be able to present his flock complete in Christ. In Philemon, he's referred to as Paul's fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. He may very well have been arrested when he got to Rome, giving up his personal freedom to secure the spiritual freedom of the people he cared about. Next we find Luke, 
sending his greetings. And it's here that we learn that Luke was a physician. And since he wasn't listed with Paul's fellow workers from the circumcision, apparently he was a Gentile. Luke, you may recall, joined Paul on his second journey. And now we can surmise he joined with him to serve as his personal physician, perhaps giving up a lucrative career to be of service to one he recognized as a true man of God. He was also a faithful historian, writing both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You know, it's interesting that both he and Mark wrote books after working with Paul. But unlike the exposés written today by former employees and associates of famous people, they both wrote books to glorify Christ, not to make a name for themselves. Luke was a faithful friend to the end. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, Only Luke is with me. What a friend and fellow worker he must have been. And then there was Demas. I guess everyone has to have their Demas. The only thing we know about Demas is that, according to 2 Timothy 4.10, he was a fellow worker who deserted Paul because he loved this present world. In spite of Demas, Paul had quite a team. Quite a supporting cast. Men who are willing to work in the shadow of another for the sake of the kingdom. In my book and the Lord's, I'm sure, they are real heroes of the faith. Paul then concludes with his greetings and instructions. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, Grace be with you. Paul encouraged fellowship between the churches by asking the Colossians to greet the brethren in Laodicea and the church that met in Nympha's house. Now, we're not positive about the identity of Nympha. In fact, it may actually be Nymphus, a man because the masculine feminine forms of the name are distinguished by an accent mark and the manuscripts differ. Furthermore, we're not told where her or his home was located. What we are told is that it was the meeting place for a church, which reminds us that all the churches of the New Testament met in homes or in public places. There were no church buildings. In the first century. And so many unsung heroes of the faith hosted congregations in their homes. 
Paul then instructed the church to which this letter was being sent to pass it along to the church in Laodicea and for the Colossians to get a copy of the letter sent to them. Now, we don't have a copy of a letter sent specifically to Laodicea. But it's possible that such letter was lost, or it could be that the letter referred to was our Ephesians, which appears to have been written as a circular letter to pass on to all the churches of Asia Minor. Either way, they were told to share what they had with each other. They were then told to tell Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. Now, as we'll see next week, Archippus may have been the son of Philemon, and the church in Colossae may have actually met in Philemon's home. And Archippus may have taken over some of the ministerial duties when Epaphras went to Rome. Paul's instruction to tell Archippus to take heed of the ministry he had received almost sounds like a rebuke, like he wasn't meeting his responsibilities. But it may be that Paul was simply asking the church to encourage him, to get behind him, and express confidence that God had called him to leadership in the church. If that's the case, it's a very positive thing. Because it's very encouraging for a minister to know he has a church full of fellow workers standing behind him, supporting him, praying for him. I know I find it very encouraging when I'm assured that I'm being prayed for, especially now. And knowing that if I can't make it to church on Sunday, there are others ready to fill in for me, at the last moment, is very reassuring. What we do here is not a solo performance. It's a team effort. We are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Fellow bondservants in the Lord. And fellow prisoners in service to Christ. That's what we committed ourselves to be and we accepted him as our Savior and our Lord. We are all on the team, and it doesn't matter who the star players are. What matters is that we all do our part, play our position, fulfill our role. To work as an effective team we must give ourselves completely, surrender our all to the captain of our team, and that captain, of course, is Christ. Stand.